Welcome to Imagining Turkey podcast series co-organized by Hazal Aydın, Meryem Zişan Köker and Sertaç Sehlikoğlu. It is part of Tahayil project funded by the European Research Council and hosted at the UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity. Welcome, Cemil Aydın. I want to briefly introduce you. Cemil Aydın is a professor of history from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. His interests focus on both modern Middle Eastern history and modern Asian history, with an emphasis on the international and intellectual histories of the Ottoman and Japanese empires. His research and publications offer new ways to understand the historical roots of the contemporary world order by describing the process of imperial era conflicts and decolonization, especially from the perspective of non-Western actors of the Muslim world and East Asia. Uh, moving on to Sartar Sihlikoğlu. Yeah. I want to say, actually, Jamil Aydin, to me personally, is one of the most exciting minds in social sciences and humanities. I'm especially stimulated with the connections, historical and global connections you bring to our attention, all of which often immediately enlightened the contemporary global politics and their interconnectivities. Our episode today, therefore, aimed to use your book, The Idea of the Muslim World, to think more closely about the contemporary global politics and political Islam. Thank you for joining us, Jeremy Leiden. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, I would like to start with our first question. We believe that one of the most significant contributions of your work at least from the perspective of our ongoing Tahayu project, is about your intervention to the dualist thinking of the West versus the East or Islam versus the West. Would you help us think on how this dualist thinking still haunts the contemporary world politics, perhaps while reflecting on your scholarly thinking or concern as to why such intervention was necessary to you? Thank you, Mariam, for this great first question. To offer uh, maybe a kind of a background framework, my field of global global intellectual history or uh, international history, there was an attempt to decolonize the field in the last several decades. And as part of this decolonization, the keyword became the world making. So if anthropologists were interested in self-making, we were discussing the idea of world making from the perspective of non-European actors. So one of the top book in our field is by uh, Adam Getachew called World Making After Empire, uh, working on Pan-Africanism. Uh, so what we are trying to show is that in the last 200 years, where the biggest transformation is the end of empires and emergence of the nation states, this transformation was not inevitable. It was also not a gift by the Europeans. Uh, when their empires were ending, they uh, left nationalism and nation states as the the only viable future option for a great majority of the people in Africa and Asia. Uh, so what we are trying to show that something big happened in the second half of the 19th century, both politically and conceptually, that the non-European societies, while they were trying to free themselves or try to liberate themselves from the colonial subjugation, they also hope to achieve a different world, a better world, of more equality, more justice. Uh, And they, we, we focus on how the problem space of the late 19th century was defined by racial hierarchies. And as part of these racial hierarchies, our colleagues outside of the field of African and African-American studies focused on how 
religion actually was racialized. So we argued that the category of Asia, Islamic world, but also uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddhist world, Hindu world, these were all some way racialized initially to justify European colonial rule in those societies. So the racism, we, we have a more broad understanding of what racism was in terms of unequal treaties. In Turkey, of course, it's only known as capitulations, and, and many Turks think that it only happened to the Ottoman Empire, but not rest of the world. So it's only in that context we focus on this tragedy that many of the anti-colonial thinkers or many of the non-European thinkers who wanted to create a different, better world saw East-West, Islam-West distinction as something imposed by European colonialism as part of the civilizing mission ideology or racial hierarchies. They wanted to transcend this to create a more egalitarian, equal humanity. But in that anti-colonial mode, many chose to redefine these concepts rather than offering a, an, an alternative framework of thinking. We can't blame colonized uh, societies, you know, figures from Gandhi, Tagore, to Sunyasen, to Jamalatin Afghani and Mohammed Abdu. We do know, we do see that in their writings, they were hoping to at least formulate an alternative vision of humanity. That's uh, also uh, the title of your project. Their tahayul was very rich, their imagination. Uh, they were imagining a better future. Um, yeah. uh, they saw the problem of East-West something like black race and white race or yellow race and white race. Uh, they wanted to transcend it, but in that process, they decided to redefine these categories with the hope that they can still transcend it eventually. So the tragedy of decolonization is that we haven't moved beyond these categories that divided humanity, even though thousands or hundreds of people wanted to transcend these divisions of, of humanity. And I think what I was trying to do in both of the books, not only the previous one, the earlier one too, to see why this dualist thinking was so attractive, appealing, and why it's, it persisted through the age of decolonization and still, as you described, still haunts the contemporary war politics. There are many reasons, I think, why this happened. I think initial defensive anti-colonial project of humanism was trying to achieve equality between East and West, uh, and there was no other way. That was the problem. At some point, there was a counterattack, uh, and this counterattack was encouraged by Europeans who are discontent with, with the Western civilization themselves. I, I, do, I do think that we, we have to take this, what I call the theosophical moment, seriously. So in the late 19th, early 20th century, theosophists, initially focusing on Hindu and Buddhist anti-colonialism, argued that the non-Europeans shouldn't emulate the West, but they should go back to their authentic roots to save the West from themselves, so the West from, uh, from their own crisis of materialism, colonialism, and racism. And the best example of this is that how, for example, Mahatma Gandhi became a symbol of, of theosophical modernity and anti-colonial nationalism. His title, Mahatma, uh, is actually not a traditional Hindu title, but it was actually reformulated by the theosophists in England and given to him, and it, it kind of stayed with us. So initially, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was very upset that the nationalist leader was using this very spiritual term, the great soul. Uh, but the, the origins of the term is also go 
going to this Europeans who are glorifying the East and Asia as a solution to the illness and the sickness of the West. I think these are interesting moments where we can see that even when people are trying to transcend this duality, there are so many reasons and so many actors are redefining these categories and making them live perhaps much longer beyond the expiration date that they were supposed to have. A similar story happens with regard to Muslim societies in Islam and the West. And supposed to These terms are supposed to be redefined and challenged, but then it came back with a vengeance after the Cold War, especially in the last 10 years of the Cold War. I tried to trace why this clash of civilization narrative, which had a very different purpose initially, uh, survived and persisted through decolonization and the Cold War to came back in the late 20th century. Thank you. So following your answer to the first question, we wanted to ask, is Ummet in Turkish a useful global concept? Very important concept historically. It has to be historicized, obviously. And we can attribute that a great decolonizing intent and purpose. And some Muslims and non-Muslims could argue that it may be an alternative uh, concept against the dominance of Western epistemology, the Ummah, as well as Caliphate. What I was trying to argue is this, is that as a historian, even though Ummah is presented as an alternative to the Western notion of nation and humanity, We need to historicize the term Ummah itself. So we need to decolonize the term that's supposed to be very decolonizing in that regard that it has always been redefined throughout Muslim history. There was no one state static understanding of the Ummah since the time of the Prophet Muhammad. It went through some sort of reimaginations through the age of empires uh, and Muslims never lived under one single political unit. So I was trying to highlight the imperialness of the Ummah for the late 19th century. And I noted the irony that The idea of a Muslim unity or the Ummah uh, reached its golden age, ironically, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, under the rule of the, the kind of European Western hegemony, both intellectually and politically. I try to highlight how this notion did not, this notion of Ummah as a Muslim world, as a kind of a geopolitical unit, as a civilization, as a historical narrative, as well as a, as a narrative of a humanist, universalist world religion, did not precede European colonialism, but then became co-constituted with that encounter of European colonialism and its epistemological, conceptual, orientalist arguments. Uma uh, is useful global concept. It depends on who, what kind of use you want to put it. Uh, there's you know, different actors can uh, always redefine it, but I was disturbed is that it became a historical term. That's very disturbing. And there are, uh, because it, it turned into a very ahistorical term, It loses its political, uh, progressive, emancipatory political purpose. It also loses any political goal that it, it's supposed to have. I was very shocked how ahistorical it became. Actually, initially it was dehistoricized by the European Orientalism as an insult. And then at some point, then the Muslims also dehistoricize it as a counter-humanism or as an alternative to European modernity. But, but what I mean by as an insult is in the European encounter with empires like the Ottomans, Mughals, and others, or in the European encounter with any Muslim societies, whenever a Muslim has a very legitimate, very understandable critique for equality and for rights, European response was often is that you're criticizing me for being unjust, unfair, and racist and oppressive, but your critique does not aim for equality. You're just being Muslim, right? You're, you're against me because of your Muslimness, that you want to 
revive your ummah against the British Empire. Uh, this wasn't true. This was never the case, neither in the Ottoman Empire nor in the, in the case of South Asia. I find it very paradoxical is that even though this was never the case, at some point Muslims themselves thought that it would be a good idea to revive an idealistic utopian understanding of the ummah as an alternative to European modernity. But we have to historicize when that happened and how that happened. So in the book's attempt to historicize, I was trying to note that in the Namak Kemal's generation, let's say in 1870s and 1880s, there was still an attempt to preserve a diverse cosmopolitan empire. So when Namak Kemal was going back to Islamic democracy, Quranic verses to justify parliament and shura, or when he was talking about the Ummah solidarity, he was doing this in, 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 a, in a way of affirming rights, equal rights for Muslims, both in international law, but also in, in various empires. But when we get to the notion of Ummah in the age of nation states, then the notion completely changes. That in that case, it's, uh, the concern is no longer preservation of an empire. Empires are gone. And then it becomes a, a notion of, of either making a nation bigger or creating a multinational confederation. So even starting with these uh, simple observations that our notion of Ummah as a global concept needs to be historicized. And we need to go beyond this simple, very attractive narrative that the Ummah was united and Europeans came to divide it. Uh, as a historian, uh, we know that from early time of the Muslim community until 20th century, Muslims were never politically united. And in fact, uh, the idea of a unity or the need for unity only happened in, uh, in the age of colonialism in the late 19th, early 20th century. Where does contemporary Turkey lie in the middle of all this? Great question. So Turkey, at least conservative intellectuals in Turkey, thinks that because of its Ottoman legacy, Turkey uh, was the leader of the Ummah, at least since Ottoman conquest of Egypt. Istanbul carried the title of the Caliphate. And they are proud of the attention and the support Turkish Caliphate received Ottoman Caliphate received from the global Muslim public opinion. And there are some sort of well-known episodes of this is that yet it is true that colonized Muslim public opinion from India to Indonesia look up to reforms in Ottoman Istanbul and the spiritual prestige of the Ottoman Caliph increased in the age of colonialism. Not necessarily the political one, the idea of a spiritual caliphate was formulated. And, and because uh, Ottoman Empire was ruling over all the major holy cities of pilgrimage, uh, Mecca, Medina, as well as Jerusalem, and Karbala and Najaf, that they end up becoming the protectors of this kind of an idea of a spiritual Muslim community, both Shia and Sunni. And they become symbolically very important uh, as a Muslim dynasty that could also be modern and be part of Europe. So if you look at Turkey's identity and opposition, we could see that it is an empire that was included in the European concept of empires, but it was also an empire that was racialized as a Muslim empire and demonized, and it was glorified and embraced by 
non-European Muslim and non-Muslim public opinion in Asia and Africa as a symbolically uh, successful model of Eastern Muslim Asian modernity. But that empire joined World War One and used pan-Islamism as a, a war propaganda uh, in alliance with Germany. It's a highly misunderstood episode. Then turned into a republic and then supposedly as a republic distanced itself after Lausanne and the abolishment of the caliphate from the Islamic world uh, in order to join Europe. And, you know, these are the most common narratives of history. Both Arnold Toynbee and later on Samuel Huntington wrote that even though Turkey wanted to change civilization, almost convert from Islamic civilization to Western civilization, that process could not have been completed. So it became a torn country in the middle. And domestically, there are still ideological camps in Turkey who thought that the conversion can be completed. It's just the Europeans who are betraying Turkey, even though Turkey is more European and Western, could be more European and Western than Europeans. And there's no reason to go back to the East and the Islamic world. While um, some group, ideological groups see this as a alienation, as a mistake to leave the East and the Islamic world to join Europe, which will never accept Turkey. So Turkey's story in the middle of all of this is, is becomes a way to confirm East-West duality, even though in various moments in history, uh, both in late Ottoman Empire and modern Republic, Turkey tried to overcome or transcend this duality. So as a historian, I, I guess you know in the book, I was trying to discuss how the conceptual duality itself became a political problem, how historical narratives became also a political problem, and then try to offer a different narrative of history. So a couple of things are important. So one, uh, for example, in terms of the narrative, I try to highlight in the chapters on the um, late 19th, early 20th century, that the Turkey's or Ottoman Empire's prestige and respect increased in the global Muslim and Asian African public opinion not because it was representing an alternative Eastern modernity, but precisely because it was also a Muslim member of the European Club of Empires. It's, it's a, now a completely forgotten episode that part of Ottoman Caliphate's reputation came from the fact that the Caliph was a member of the civilized club of European great powers and empires, despite the European rejection of that process. So I noted how Fez become an interesting symbol of that attempt to be both Muslim and European and universal. As you know, Fez is adopted as a headgear for Ottoman bureaucrats to transcend the earlier divisions of the Middle East system, that everyone can wear the Fez and you wouldn't know whether someone is a Muslim, Christian or Jew. Beyond that, Fez was also a Mediterranean thing. It's kind of a Greek and Moroccan legacy to it as the capital city of Morocco. But as a headgear, it was supposed to symbolize Turkey belonging to this emerging European imperial civilization. But by early 20th century, it was clear that the Fez became a symbol of Islam. Uh, it was even adopted by some of the African-Americans in the um, United States as, as a sign of their belonging to the Oriental wisdom civilization. So Fez appears in some of Beyonce's video clips, in, including Lemonade, in kind of indirect refer reference to the Moorish science temple and African-American Islam. So we, I, I think in the book, I tried to show that after the Republic, Turkey did not actually leave Asia and the Islamic world to join Europe. Turkey was always at least politically part of COP. And Asia and the Islamic world actually emerged in that struggle against Europe's double standards and, and uh, European hypocrisy that Turks were trying to challenge. But this is what historians, I think, do recently, is to show 
why certain narratives we take it for granted, we see it as very natural, how they emerge, why they seem to be so attractive, embraced by people, and what we do by historicizing them. And, and the book is also show why Turkey is a kind of a case study of a fractured nation between two civilizations, why this is more of a late Cold War, mid, mid to late Cold War product. It has something to do with Afro-Asian challenge to European empires and the Europe's own ethnocentrism, rather than a tragic story of one nation belonging to one civilization trying to convert, but not achieving the full conversion and still keeping elements from the earlier conversation. So Turkey lie in the middle of all of this. I think if you think about a a topic on Orientalism, racism, and international order, I think it's it's a good laboratory to see every pathology and every problem in these uh, conceptual frameworks you can see being replicated in the discussions on Turkey, whether modernization theory, clash of civilization, or ideological battles like Islamism and Kemalism. Since your book was out in 2017, a number of political changes happened all around the world all adding up to the global populist rise and the effect of the new political Islam in this new turn. As the author of the idea of the Muslim world, which specific elements in your analysis seem to help us better understand this recent moment in political history? A great question. Since you invited our colleague Daryl Lee, uh, I think in terms of the idea of the Muslim world as it is formulated or discussed in the last 20, 30 years has something to do with the notion of, of a global war on terror, global war against jihad. Um, yeah, so the things became much darker. And what, what, what we have seen, of course, with the rise of Trump and the populist right-wing ideologies in Europe, which was already there beforehand, that sometimes the so-called global war on terror and political Islam might, might be hiding Christian crusade or a white race crusade. So sometimes it becomes very obvious that once you, you know, at the end of like 10, 20 years war against Islamic political Islam, first, not only we see that Europe itself became more white and more Christian and America too. So it's not clear what, who's, who's fighting what on what level. There are still some very mysterious things. For example, the, the Indian Hindu fundamentalist movement, which utilized global war on terror for their own political purposes against, you know, Pakistan or Kashmiris or their Muslim minorities, still appear as something familiar and preferable by the Europeans. I mean, they're, no matter how much uh, of a critique of India's oppression of Muslim minority in Europe, which makes Europeans feel good about themselves, but they still do not read Modi government as they should be reading it. Modi government may look more religious than a Muslim brotherhood, right? That um, is, is, is basically Hindu brotherhood government in, in some ways. Uh, in their own ideology, in their discourse, it's, it's not seen as being significant. Um, uh, so there, there's a, the populism in Asia, too, that is very worrisome. As a historian, I think one of the most uh, interesting long-term uh, contrasts with the late 19th century and today is that at least in the late 19th, early 20th century, Hindus like Gandhi or Buddhist or Chinese like Sun Yat-sen and Muslims, they were in alliance with each other. We know that Gandhi was one of the most popular politicians in Egypt, uh, including among the Manar circles. And they will see racism and clash of civilization theories that is propagated and promoted by mm-hmm. European empires, but the Asians will say that, well, we are offering an alternative, we are together. Is it for Hindu-Muslim unity or Muslim-Chinese unity? Or generally, 
pan-Islamic, pan-Asian unity and solidarity. Fast forward in 100 years is, is that not only that the Europe got back, it's, it's more of a Christian white supremacist ideas, especially with regard to Muslims, but Asia is also fractured in some ways. That, that China, India, Muslim, Asia are, are seem to be also in conflict with each other in, in different ways. So I have no simple explanation why this, this long-term transformation happened. But one, one thing I do observe is that, and I could see it in the comments on my book, if I publish or my articles in, in magazines on, on online journals, sometimes I see that, oh, this is another Muslim professor in America thinking that all the fault belongs to the West and how we created the Islamic world. What about jihadists? Did they just come from another universe? Which is an interesting critique. Actually, all the jihadists actually appeared in this world, right? They didn't come from another universe. So, But then there will also be comments from Muslims are saying that why is this secular person denying that all Muslims believe in the caliphate? As, as, as some, somehow it seems like all Muslims are supposed to believe in the caliphate. Uh, and when you historicize the caliphate, you're also betraying that. And sometimes these two comments confirm and reinforce each other because Europeans also think that any critique of European colonialism is a nostalgia for Muslim political systems of, of jihad and caliphate and oppression of minorities and jizya. And it's really hard to tell people that when jizya was abolished, first of all, it was abolished by a Muslim monarch, by the caliph, by the Muslim clerics. Right? It, was, it was gone. And I have never seen anyone saying that, oh, we need to bring jizya back. I mean, have you ever seen any Ottoman intellectual in 1870s, 80s, Abdulhamid, or Young Turks, uh, or Republic? There was none, zero. Jizya was just vanished, right? That, and the same is true for the caliphate, too, by the way. I think by in the 1950s, there is no one is asking for a return of the caliphate. But these tropes remain active in European imagination. So it is one of the bigger puzzles is that, you know, even when Muslim societies are creating secular nation states, and even when they are really more secular than other Asian societies in many ways, I mean, and I will insist that Muhammad Ali Jinnah was more secular than Mahatma Gandhi in, in his own way. But then looking back, Gandhi is interpreted to be more secular than Jinnah, and it's perceived as Muslims who couldn't want to live in, in a secular India, wanted to separate. It's the opposite in some ways, in many ways. And there were so many cases that I, I could smile when I read it in the 60s and 70s when there were nation states and Muslim societies where there so many um, ideological movements like Nasserism and Pan-Arabism. It's the European and American Orientalists will say, like, what happened to the Ummah? Where, you know, why are Muslims are so secular? Uh, what happened to the Muslim unity? What happened to the caliphate? It seems like they are really disturbed that their job lost their significance that you know they trained themselves uh, with uh, to understand the true texts right that early texts everything about Muslims today so there's a um, strange moment after the Iranian revolution it feels like Bernard Lewis and all the Orientals felt like they're you know they're deserving their own salary and they can explain it by referring to everything about Muslim politics by referring to early Islam, which is equally wrong. And you could see that even someone like Michael Cook, who keeps writing things uh, to explain contemporary Muslim politics with reference to texts from 10, 20 years after Muhammad or, you know, around in first 100, 200 years. Methodologically, that's impossible to explain. And even when 
some of the political parties or ideologies who are trying to revive the Ummah and the Caliphate and Jihad. There's a way as a historian to explain how modern ideologies trying to use old concepts for, for very different purposes. Um, um, I think uh, in, I refer to that in my book, but when, whenever there was a bombing or, uh, or a nationalist anti-colonial attack on British uh, officers in India, European interpretation was mainly that it must be done by Muslims, even though they will arrest the person who happened to be a Hindu or a Sikh, that they will insist that Hindus wouldn't do such a thing. And, and these are sometimes Germans who are friends of the Islamic world. They will say that oh, if someone is putting a bomb on you know, the governor's car in Bengal, it must be a Muslim because they believe in jihad and Hindus wouldn't do such a thing. When we know, looking back, that all the planners were and and uh, and the nationals who are now glorified as heroes are Hindus. There's this issue of racializing Muslims. And in my mind, everything you're saying is connected to this kind of almost Muslim exceptionalism. Oh, they're Muslims. They should be different. And as if every critique, including secularism, including feminism, including democracy, every kind of progressive critical thinking needs to be imported by Muslims from outside. And that outside is always the West as well. So this kind of it's reinforcing the same dichotomy. And when you were saying, you know, these two parties who are critical to you, they're not actually, they, uh, you're right, they are the kind of opposites of the very same spectrum. And it's almost as if, you know, I don't know what you feel, but I, I feel like it's a kind of reassurance as an intellectual. You know, as a historian, there's nothing else I could see. Uh, you know, we have to historicize and, and show the historical context. I do not see an anti-imperialist up to limit like Che Guevara in the palace. He was an emperor. You don't need to demonize him. He may have done really great things, modernizing Ottoman government. But the, the idea that he was the leader of the Ummah and he was defending the Ummah against Western colonialism is a fiction invented in the 40s and 50s by uh, Turkish conservative thinkers like Nijif Mazel Kisakirek. And there are so many bizarre twists to the story. Actually, what they attribute to Abdel Hamid is, is Amer Pasha, who is more close to Ataturk and Ismet Yununu. These were you know, all same generation. But because Amer Pasha was discredited for uh, leading Turkey to defeat in World War One. They attribute everything he said and he wanted to do to Abdul Hamid without mentioning his name. And nobody in Turkey also knows the caliph who declared jihad against European empires. So do you know the name of the caliph who declared jihad against European empires? He's buried in Abe Sultan. Which caliph actually declared jihad? Well, under which caliph Ottoman Empire declared jihad against European empires? Everybody in Turkey, people think it was like Abdul Hamid doing this. Abdul Hamid was already gone overthrown. People who actually overthrow Abdul Hamid declared jihad against European empires. You know, very simple things in, in Turkey, but I always realized that even the most greatest advocate of caliphate would not know which caliph did the, the jihad declaration. Sultan Rashad, Mehmet Rashad, mm-hmm. uh, was considered as a weak one and always under the control of Jamal, uh, Jamal Talat and Enver. Uh, he's buried in Abe Sultan. If you ever go in the behind, there's a special place for him. It also shows the the kind of power of trolling. Uh, I, co- I consider Nijif Fazl as, as, as the most successful troll in Turkish intellectual history. He's a good poet. Uh, if he were to live today, I, I'm sure he, had, he would have like 100 million followers in Twitter and just having these fantastic formulations and slogans which is historically inaccurate, but very attractive and appealing. 
yeah, this is a puzzle of intellectual history. We don't know what to do with it. How a, a fiction can be so powerful in, in later periods. Do you think if anti-Muslim or Orientalist discourse facilitated Islamist politics and rhetorics of grievance, and if so, how? And in relation to this, how did ideas of Orientalism boomerang back to the Muslim world through discourses on anti-colonial modernity, Muslim reform, and so on? Uh, what have been the consequences of this form of modern Islamic ideology and rhetoric? The relationship between Orientalists and pan-Islamists are very well known. So we do know that, I mean, Orientalists and every form of Muslim intellectual, like we know that when Shinasi went to Paris, we would hang out with Ernest Renan. Uh, we know that Abul Kalam Azad knew Louis Massignon. And, you know, this is a very common thing that uh, if you are an intellectual from Muslim majority countries, if you're in Paris and London, you will meet people who study your language and who write books about you. There are also correspondence between Orientalists and, and Egyptian intellectuals or Indian ones. So they do share this kind of conceptual framework and they don't have to create a kind of a conspiracy theory behind these things. And I think there is it's part of our tahayyul, everybody in this amazing time of, of utopia and globalization, to people try to understand the, the rapidly changing world and try to shape it and try to give a certain direction and try to defend their rights. And, and these are all political struggles. But a couple of broader forgotten strands that I wanted to highlight in this story. So Muslim intellectuals were not passive recipients of Orientalist categories. So it would be very unfair to say that they were fooled or they were gullible and they adopted this East-West framework. There was something before that. It was, you know, some of these frameworks can be also be very empowering. And it wasn't only the Muslims who did the Japanese, Chinese, and, and other Asians, for example, used the word Asia in a very new way to uh, substantiate their nationalist claims. Still today, Pan-Africanists and African-Americans use the idea of Africa that redefine what it means to be Black and African without rejecting it. You can't say that uh, you know Africa itself, similar to Muslim Ummah, is a modern categorization. In fact, what the idea of an African civilization, the idea of a Black culture and civilization is initially ascribed to, to Africans. Africans before the 19th century didn't see themselves as part of a single civilization or, or a single race. And today they still hold on to it, as you know from the last Marvel movie, The, the Black Panther, represents a kind of a pan-African narrative of identity and history. But as I told in my class to my students, is that Hollywood would never make a movie called Arab Panther or a Muslim Panther. That would be too scary. Maybe Muslims will do it, but then we wouldn't know what, what, what happens. And when Muslims do it, though, and I, I thought about this, is that if Muslims do a movie like Black Panther, like a Muslim Panther, how would you depict the woman in there, right? Would they have Shruti, the scientist, or a queen mother? Or would they think that in order to decolonize their society, they will have whaled or secluded woman or some sort of a alternative clothing for, for women? I think the Orientalism uh, becomes crucial in in those aspects. So, and, and there is a there is a time where decolonization or decolonizing ideologies argue that in order to assert Muslim modernity and agency, you need to go back to the authentic roots of Islam and not emulate the West. But this idea itself is very modern, very new. This wasn't the case with, with Nama Kemal. Nama Kemal went back to early Islam to show its compatibility and harmony with 
constitutional European ideas of enlightenment. So he's an enlightenment thinker, but he thinks that Islam and enlightenment are compatible. But when we get to uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, there are people who say that in order to be truly modern, you go back to authentic Islam or authentic Hinduism or authentic Buddhism. I, I think in, in the Turkish audiences uh, or the Muslim audiences, the most important figure who represented that turn is is actually a convert. A converse can be very important. Is is René Guénon, who um, is a perennialist, who declared that the modern world is in crisis and and uh, Muslims shouldn't emulate the West or Asians or Orientals, and they go back to their authentic roots. And I think that uh, encouragement to go back to authentic roots initially did not have a conservative or theocratic significance. Uh, it, it was still very modernist. It was still in the form of curing the modern world from Western crises created by the Western colonialism and racism. But then it did overlap with, with other trends that, that we call Salafi modernism. It, it's, uh, in terms of intellectualism, I think this is a very new and uh, overlooked aspect of intellectual history, that the calls to go back to Salaf, to authentic roots, which was seen as a sign of Muslims always going back to early Islam, to Asr Saadah, the age of felicity, or uh, the time of Sahaba, might have been actually an encouragement given, or uh, an idea promoted by global but theosophist thinkers of the, uh, from 1910s to 1940s and 50s. This is a long way of, of saying that the relationship between Orientalist and Islamist, modern Islamic thought is much more complex. It's very intimate and it's not over yet. Uh, and it needs to be better analyzed by younger generation of scholars. I guess there's more work to be done, but we would like to go beyond the simple formula of the Orientalists impacting modern Muslim thinkers. I think modern Muslim thinkers are also impacting the Orientalists, and they are doing something that is much beyond the capacity of the Orientalists themselves. It is the anti-colonial uh, politics have a lot to do with these formulations. I want to add one more point about this, actually, regarding anthropological angle. I kind of find it very problematic like regarding this kind of how these two parties seem to be feeding each other. I think it's partly, at least in the field of anthropology and a range of, I don't know, sociology of Islam, I suppose, there's this tendency to focus on what I call canonical Islam as the form of Islam. So mm -hmm. all other critical forms are kind of seen as diluted by the Western ideologies or Western an impact. So then when we centralize that kind of particular type of canonical or populist forms of Islam and Islamic politics, then they would continue feeding each other. There's this problem existing. So actually, my next question was going to be about Abdul Hamid. I did find your every analysis and reflections on Abdul Hamid quite exciting, actually. This is partly because my readings of Islamist narrative have a particular heroic portrayal of Abdul Hamid. And I'm speaking specifically on accounts of particular type of his ideologues that are kind of establishing themselves as more like popular historians. Um, so I think my question um, later to that would be just to keep things focused. Is it possible to use Abdul Hamid period to not fall into the dualist gaps, they seem to create very, they being the kind of these kind of uh, Islamic ideologues, seem to create very easily. But instead of this, perhaps to complicate the processes of westernization, colonialism and empire. No, yeah, it's a great question. And 
because Abdulhamid became such a uh, over politicized, over utilized symbol and metaphor, is that sometimes you feel like there is nothing you can do to rescue this from all these fictions and lies and metaphors, and maybe we should just focus on something else. Just to give an idea to the audience who's not familiar, one of the titles of book series that's composed yeah. of multiple volumes is called the Abdul Hamid's Dance with the Wolves. Yes, this is true. <laughs> it seems to have an intelligence agency that infiltrating the Buckingham Palace and Forest Hall, the division of the Middle East and Balfour Declaration and Zionism. But, you know, some of these things are simple lies. I mean, Abdul Hamid gave uh, Theodore Harold uh, a medal and then in the movie, you show him as, as like trying to destroy him. Or Abdulhamid served European ambassadors wine. And then in the movie, you see that he's slapping them, you know, British ambassador. Or, or there's a lie that Abdulhamid never lost the territory. Like, are you kidding me? Like, did you ever look at the dates? He lost more territory than any other emperor in, 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 in on those. I mean, actually, he lost the most territory. I mean, this includes Tunisia, you know, the Balkans and uh, like if Abdelhamid didn't lose anything, like who did it? It's just it's not very clear. It's actually only him before the Young Turks who will lose um, also the, all the Arab lands. But he's a complex figure, and you, one way to to challenge that to see how complex he is. Like he likes operas, and he's a European style monarch. So you can go and do a good study of him and rescue him from both this kind of anti-Abdulhamid polemics or pro-Abdulhamid glorification, that could be one uh, strategy. Uh, you can also do more of a comparative thing, right? He's, he's com- contemporary of the Emperor Meiji. He's also highly respected and, and revered by the global Muslim public opinion. There are reasons for, for his, uh, his respect and reverence. And his diplomacy is very smart. My colleagues, for example, show that under his reign, international law office of the foreign ministry was highly developed. So instead of fighting, he actually tried to use international law to uh, preserve the empire. And that's his job description, to defend and preserve the empire. Uh, that makes him more legal internationalist than anyone else. And and actually, the next generation, the generation of Ataturk, they saw Abdulhamid as weak and feminine because they thought he's just using diplomacy and international law and, and they they kind of thought that that failed. So there's some sort of a masculinist militarist turn uh, after the Russo-Japanese war. And actually Ataturk uses the kind of in his biography, in, in, in his memoirs on this Japanese term of uh, the spirit of attack, kogekisation. He says that talking and diplomacy and law is not enough. We need to fight. And this is you know, very common to all the non-European empires and nationalists. And, and I always give the example of the Chinese nationalist Sun Yat-sen, is such a great speaker in, in, in one of his talks on great Asianism. He praises Turkey a lot, you know, Lausanne and Mustafa Kemal and Turkish Republic. But he, when he paraphrases praise of Turkey and the Ottoman Empire, he says, we in Asia and Africa, when we are discriminated and oppressed, first thing we do is we talk back. We, we express the truth to power. But he says, well, that's never worked. You could never change your condition by just talking against Orientalists. I mean, think of all the professors in America and England. We have been writing and thinking as Edward Said, and our impact is close to zero, I guess. Right? Um, talking is never, you know, we can train so many students. We can say, try to decolonize scholarship. He says, it does not help us to liberate. And he says, the second step is solidarity. And the third step, he says, we have to play dirty, you know, arm ourselves, 
um, militarily empower ourselves. That's why he likes Turkish War of Independence and Atatürk. And he sees that as a good example after Japan, um, using the military and the fighting and then diplomacy and the truth telling as a way to emancipate Asia from European colonial rule. And I, I think in, in some ways, the relationship between the generation of, of Abdulhamid and the Tanzimat diplomats and the young Turks, Turks is that, that I think the young Turks thought that this was more of a spiritual, legalist, diplomatic, feminine diplomacy um, uh, strategy, and they can do better. And then they found out that they couldn't do any better. But it's, in some ways, then we can maybe go back to write a very good biography of Abdulhamid or a very good books on his era, which has been done by many colleagues since Selim Deringer's first book on Abdulhamid, right? Selim Deringer's book on Abdulhamid is actually is a good balance between these two extremes. And then many colleagues have continued that, that tradition. Uh, we can rescue him from these, these dualities. That's, I think, is possible. Thank you very much for your time, uh, Professor Aydin. We're extremely thrilled, seriously, I can't kind of put this into words fully enough, to have started with you, to have started the podcast series Imagining Turkey with you. Thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure. You have listened to Imagining Turkey podcast series hosted at the UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity, funded by the European Research Council.